the scriptures here. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. But the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. When we last examined this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, we spent uh, quite a bit of time, or at least uh, most of the time last time I spoke, examining this section, which was probably taken from a hymn, that the New Testament church used. We saw that there was a great deal of content in those six lines there in verse 16. It's no wonder that Paul could encourage Christians to admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs if they had songs like that. And God has continued to bless the church with spiritual songs and hymns uh, that instruct us and teach us. But he goes on to say, after all that wonderful content in that uh, fragment of the hymn, in contrast to these tremendous truths concerning the person and work of Christ, he goes on to say that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. I think we can say this, that wherever truth is presented or embraced, Satan will be right there to try to interject error. Wherever the mystery of godliness goes forth, you can be sure that the mystery of iniquity will be right there. Wherever there are sheep, there will be wolves. Satan will be active in trying to bring about apostasy. First of all, to keep you from hearing the word of God. And secondly, if you hear and receive it, to try to get you to turn away from it getting people to turn away from the faith. That's what apostasy is. And Satan will be very active in that. So I think we can say this, that we should not be surprised that error and false doctrine have been so rampant throughout church history. uh, These verses here tell us we should expect that, realize that this is going to be the case. This is exactly what Paul was saying. When Paul says that the Spirit expressly says, it's probably a reference to some specific revelation that he had. But that general truth about there being a turning away from the faith is found often in the scriptures and 
the Lord taught it himself. Let me just give you a few references here. Matthew 24:11. Many false prophets will arise and lead astray and lead many astray. And because lawlessness is increased, the love of many will grow cold. The love of many will grow cold. Mark 13:22. False prophets, false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders, signs and wonders in order, if possible, to lead the elect astray. And I think it's significant, you know, this was a letter written to Timothy while he was at Ephesus. Paul left him there at Ephesus. Well, Paul tells us in Acts 20, verse 29 through 30, speaking to this very church uh, at Ephesus, he says, I know that after my departure... Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will will arise. From among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. So he says, I know this is going to happen right there at Ephesus. And here we see it happening, Paul having to exhort Timothy along this line to tell him, stand against this. Don't, don't allow this. So, perverse, he says, speaking perverse things. So what is the source of these perverse things, these false teachings? Well, ultimately, I think we can say it's Satan, the deceiver, the liar, the father of lies. These perverse things are doctrines of demons. They didn't just... Happen. They didn't just pop into someone's mind. They're doctrines of demons spread by deceitful spirits, he says. See how he says that? Some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So we say the ultimate source is Satan, but the proximate source, the, the immediate source that Satan uses our people, our men and women. Satan plants these lies in the hearts and minds of people. What kind of people does he do that with? Well, he tells us here. Hypocrites. Hypocrisy, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. He uses hypocrites. He uses liars. He uses people who are lovers of money. He talks about that later on as a source of all sorts of evil. People who are lovers of money or power or the praise of men. In other words, he uses self-serving, selfish people in order to spread these doctrines, these doctrines of demons. And he says that people like this will become seared in their conscience. I want to just say something to the children here. You come to church and you hear things where we present things from the Bible. Your parents teach you things from the scriptures. But sooner or later you're going to get out and hear other things. People are going to tell you other things and they won't sound the same because they're not the same. They're, they're things that come from people who don't believe 
the Bible, who don't trust in Christ. And you'll have to you have to weed out truth from error. You have to make decisions about what you're hearing, and realize that a lot of what you hear from people is not true. You cannot just because somebody seems very sincere or very convinced in their own mind that what they're saying is right doesn't mean it's right. Some of the people that will talk to you will people will be people who have their conscience seared. Now, what does that mean? Well, I want to talk about that a little bit. What does it mean to have a seared conscience? People who repeatedly violate their conscience. That's what he's talking about. And I'll say this to you children. I'll say it to us all. Do not violate your conscience. If, if, if something deep down in you says, this isn't right, this doesn't sound right, you better listen to your conscience. Don't go against it. Well, how does a person sear their conscience? They, they go against it and go against it and go against it. And pretty soon, you don't hear that voice of conscience anymore. Your conscience has become seared. So people who repeatedly violate their conscience are ripe for deception. That's the kind of people that Satan will use to present these doctrines of demons. They'll be deceived, and they'll be used to deceive other people. If we do not keep a good conscience, we will make shipwreck of our faith and possibly the faith of others. You see, some people go against their God-given moral monitor, that conscience, that inward voice that God's given there to tell us some things about right and wrong. They go against that so often that they become seared as with a branding iron. Now here's the picture that Paul's using. He's, he's giving us a picture of something that's been cauterized. Cauterized. That means that heat has been put to it so strongly that it's been seared. And the feeling is lost in that area. The sensitivity is gone because it's been seared. The nerves have been burned, and there's no feeling left in that area. That's when, what happens when something is cauterized or seared. So a seared conscience is one that has, that has become insensitive to right and wrong. This person talking to you may sound very convinced convincing and convinced in their own mind. And they are because they've gone against their conscience so much they, they don't sense the true right and wrong anymore. Sin has so seared and numbed their conscience that Satan can readily use them to spread his lies. They believe Satan's lies. They, they may actually think they're pleasing God when they're spreading doctrines of demons because of a seared conscience. So what lies was Paul speaking about in this situation there in Ephesus? Well, he tells us in verse 3, Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. 
forbidding marriage and advocating abstaining from foods. At first glance, this may not seem like it's such a great error, not too bad, forbidding marriage and abstaining from, from foods, but this was the beginning of something that was soon to have a major impact on the church. And Paul recognized it right, right from the beginning. So I want to talk about what this led to uh, in the second and third century. One of the great heretical challenges of the church was a thing called Gnosticism. Sounds like it starts with an N, but it starts with a G. You'd think you'd say Gnosticism, but that's not, that's not how it's pronounced. Uh, the name comes from a Greek word, gnosis, gnosis, which means knowledge, G-N-O-S-I-S. Let me show you where that word is used, you know, one of the main places that it comes out here. Turn to the end of this letter, chapter 6. Paul ends up the letter by saying this, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly, worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. That word there is gnosis, what is falsely called gnosis, knowledge. So Paul was seeing the beginnings, you might say, of this Gnosticism that really took hold in the second and third century. It's kind of a pre-Gnosticism that he's dealing with here, the beginnings of it. And he wants to nip it in the bud there, uh, writing to Timothy at Ephesus. So I think it's worth taking just a little time uh, concerning this subject of Gnosticism because it's still with us in various forms. And we have to guard against it. We have to be on guard against this type of thing that he was dealing with. For the Gnostic, salvation was by way of mystic enlightenment. Mystic enlightenment. A special hidden knowledge. See, there's the word Gnostic, knowledge. A special hidden knowledge. It was not by faith in God's historically revealed truth. God sending his son into the world. It wasn't by that. It was by having this special, uh, what you might call, occult or hidden knowledge revealed to you. Uh, so the problem then, according to the Gnostic, was that ignorance, not sin, was man's great problem. You just don't have the knowledge, you see. You don't have the gnosis. Well, that's not the biblical present, uh, position. Sin is our great problem. It's not that we don't know, it's that we don't do. The Gnostics claimed a secret knowledge that none but the spirituals had. And so generally, the whole movement tended toward a super-spiritual elitism with people having an inflated view of themselves. I'm the special one because I have the special knowledge that nobody else has. And, you know, one of the reasons I think this is worth going into, just some of this attitude, is because that type of thought form is still around today. We have people that say they've, given, uh, they've been given a special knowledge apart from the Bible or beyond the Bible, uh, and that 
They know things that Paul didn't know. They've got a spirituality that goes far beyond Paul or Peter or the New Testament uh, writers. And whenever we hear that type of thing, you know, that I have this latter-day light, this new revelation, we have to, our, our red flag should go up. Well, because they had this great knowledge, supposedly, uh, there were certain things that they were teaching that uh, certainly didn't come from the Bible. And one of those things, one of their teachings was that the material creation was evil. That's another aspect of Gnosticism, that the material creation was evil. The spiritual realm is good, but matter and the material realm is evil. As a consequence, everything that had to do with the body was evil. You've got to follow the, th- the flow of thought here. The, the spiritual realm is good. The, the material realm is evil. Your body is material, so your body is evil. Uh, and also, everything that has to do with the material world is evil. So people needed to abstain from food as far as possible, and they should abstain from marriage. That's the two aspects that Paul started seeing uh, here being presented at at Ephesus. In other words, the desires of the material body must be suppressed. The main branch of Gnosticism manifested itself in extreme asceticism and severe treatment of the body. I say the main branch because there was a lesser branch, a smaller movement of people who had this special knowledge, who sought to overcome the body and the material realm by indulging it. Since salvation depended on knowledge, it didn't really matter how you lived, so this group indulged in extremely immoral behavior. You overcome the material body by indulging it. So you have from this one basic error that that matter is evil, you have two opposite extremes of sin. You have asceticism and indulgence, or you might say legalism and license, both under that same heading. But the larger group took that first view that anything related to the physical body should be shunned, and that's the group that Paul was dealing with here uh, in these verses. From, from the very, this very small beginning, you might say, just this little idea, it wasn't little, but it, it uh, didn't seem at this time, you know, well, we should maybe not get married, maybe uh, abstain from certain foods. Uh, from that grew tremendous error. Uh, major challenges to the basic teaching of Christianity in the following sentences, uh, centuries. Let me just point three of these out. Three great distortions of biblical truth that soon manifested itself in the Gnostic teaching. First was a distorted view of God in the Old Testament scriptures. Next, a distorted view of salvation. And last, a distorted view of Christ. Let me just expand on this briefly. The distorted view of God came because if the Old Testament God was the creator of the material realm, then there must be something bad about the Old Testament God. And so they started teaching that he's not the highest God, he's kind of a lesser God, the God of the Old Testament. He's kind of a lesser God. Uh, 
um, and also that he was inferior to some of the um, other gods that were going to be worshipped in this Gnostic uh, hierarchy. They also taught that much of the Old Testament teaching must be rejected because it taught all about this uh, realm of the material and it didn't pre present it as being evil, so there must be something wrong with the scriptures here. And even parts of the New Testament, they selected only portions that fit their distorted view of reality. So you have then writings coming from the Gnostics, uh, the Gospel of Thomas, for instance. You'll hear about these today because people are saying, well, this shows that there were you know, other uh, ideas about Christ and things. Well, there were, but they were wrong, and they were rejected by the church. Um, so anyway, wrong view of God, wrong view of the Old Testament. Next, the Gnostic era led to a very legalistic view of salvation. Various kinds of abstinences and religious duties and rituals were necessary to earn salvation. Salvation came by secret, secret knowledge, but that secret knowledge involved lots of legalistic prohibitions, like don't marry and uh, abstain from certain foods. Lastly, Gnosticism led to a false view of Christ. Jesus could not have come in the flesh because, why? Matter is evil. He couldn't have come in the flesh. So they posited a spiritual Christ that did not die on the cross or raise from the dead. Now the thing is, every one of those areas is still around today. Distorted view of the Old Testament God, distorted view of the way of salvation, distorted view of Christ. You start out, you see, with a little wedge of error. Something like matters evil. And it goes off into every significant area of biblical truth. A seemingly small amount of error brought wrong views of God, salvation, and Christ. That little wedge of, of error driven by Satan can do a great deal of harm. From holding that matter is evil, you end up denying the basic truths of Christianity. So, the Apostle Paul could see this from the beginning, that these were, in fact, doctrines of demons. And his desire for Timothy was to stand against these lies that were beginning to creep into the church. So, what's Paul's way of refuting this teaching? It was very simple. To combat this error, he used a very basic truth, that is, God, who is all good, created matter. You see what he says here? Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. He just takes a basic truth. God made these things, and God's good. He created things like food and marriage for mankind, so they cannot possibly be bad in themselves. When God made creation, both the material and the spiritual realms, he pronounced it good. 
And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And marriage itself was introduced and instituted by God with the instructions to be fruitful and multiply. So Paul is saying these pre-Gnostic prohibitions against food and marriage were in direct conflict with the purposes of the Creator, especially his purposes for his people who believe and know the truth. If you believe and know the truth, you won't go down that route. Now, it is possible, I think, to take a verse like verse 4, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected, uh, and misuse it. For example, opium is part of God's creation. So, if I use it with gratitude, it must, there must be nothing wrong with that, right? I mean, that's what Paul says. Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude. Uh, well, Paul made poppies, that's true. I mean, God made poppies, Paul didn't. <laughs> God made poppies. But if we use the things that God made in ways that he did not intend, we can be involved in sin. We can involve ourselves in sin. The things that God created are good for the purposes for which he created them. I'll just repeat that. The things which God made, which he created, are good for the purposes for which he created them. The problem is that many people do not believe and know the truth about what God has created. We have to take our concepts of right and wrong, the right and wrong use of God's creation from his word. Otherwise, we could end up following this uh, doctrines of demons, seducing spirits. Well, I want to give you a few more examples, or a few examples, how this false concept of the material world being viewed as contaminating and renouncing the physical realm has plagued the church down through the centuries. Uh, I'll just say some of these things are going to sound very weird. And there's been weird things done in the name of Christianity. If you if you don't keep within the restraints of the scriptures, which these Gnostics did not, and some of these examples I'm going to give here of extreme asceticism, uh, you'll get off into some of the weirdest stuff you've ever seen. Can't believe people would do some of this stuff. Well, in the 3rd and 4th centuries, extreme asceticism manifested itself uh, in some of the hermits, hermits and monks going out into the desert, especially in Egypt, to live by themselves. The idea was to separate from the world and from an increasingly worldly church. They said the church, especially after the time of Constantine, was getting so worldly, we just need to get away from everybody and everything. So they went out in the desert uh, to live by themselves. But this separation was actually counter to God's word about being salt and light in the world. And even the scriptures that tell us it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good to just go out in the desert and live by yourself. 
so here's an extreme form of this, probably the most extreme form, where people called pillar saints. The pillar part was true, the saint part was not. Uh, here's what they did. These individuals uh, decided that it was spiritual to live on top of a pillar all their lives. Uh, apparently, this was supposed to be some kind of real separation from the world. You just get up on this pillar and you're away from the world and all the bad influences. Pillar saints. One such individual was Simon the Stylite. This would be about 400 423 A.D. He began living on top of a pillar and for the next 36 years he lived on a platform on top of a 60-foot pillar. 36 years living on a platform on top of a pillar. Uh, now, we read last, week, last time I spoke that the church is supposed to be the pillar and support of the truth, but this is not what Paul, that's not what Paul is talking about, living on top of a pillar. Uh, people would come from far and wide to hear him, see him up there, and actually hear him preach. I doubt if he preached from Colossians 2.23, which says, These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. I doubt if he preached from that very much. Well, that's one example. These people who, people, they, you get into these crazes. And he wasn't the only one that did this. Somehow it was spiritual to live on top of a pillar. Well, uh, some other examples. Another one of these uh, extreme uh, positions was a man, uh, one man stood all night on a jutting crag so that it was impossible for him to sleep. In other words, you keep sleep deprivation, you know, I'll stay just to show you how spiritual I am. I'll stand out on this crag here. If I fall asleep, I'll fall off and die. So I have to stay awake all night. I don't know how many nights he did that, how long that was kept on, but it was something that attracted some attention. Another was famous because he allowed his body to become so dirty and neglected and neglected that vermin dropped from him as he walked along. That's real spiritual. Yeah. Having a bunch of fleas. Uh, another deliberately ate salt at, in midsummer and then abstained from drinking water. Doubt if he did that too long, but... Somehow that was, you know, that severe treatment of the body. You see, that's supposed to make you more spiritual. Um, so that was back in like 400 A.D. As time went on, some of these things got uh, modified a little or, or 
changed a little. By the Middle Ages, various forms of asceticism were very common in the Roman Catholic Church. And I want to just give you some examples of this. Now, the most common ascetic practices at that time were uh, poverty, that's renouncing all your goods and going and living off uh, whatever handouts you could get. Self-flagellation, which means whipping yourself. Fasting, waking, that's sleep deprivation. And celibacy, not getting married. Uh, the maximum, uh, the maxim of Saint Bartholomew of uh, Farney, this would be 1193, is when he died. He said this: We must afflict our body with all kinds of adversity if we want to deliver it to the perfect purity of soul. So you got you got to afflict your body. Here's a guy that uh, you hear about and some seems fairly positive. St. Francis of Assisi lived about this same time, uh, 1181. He taught this, I have no greater enemy than my body. I have no greater enemy than my body. He said we should feel hatred towards our body for its vices and sinning. Uh, St. Francis' attitude uh, manifests itself in fasting and self and self-flagellation, again beating himself for the discipline of the of the body. He called the body brother donkey. The idea of the body as a beast of burden that, according uh, according to Fra uh, Saint Francis, should be weighed down by hard work, often scourged with the whip, and nourished with poor fodder. So you, you got to beat your body and nourish it with poor fodder. St. Dominique, there's another one you hear about some, lived about this same time. Aside from the usual waking and fasting three times every night, they would wake up three times a night to pray, which doesn't make for a very good night's sleep. It's a form of sleep deprivation. He would whip himself with an iron chain once for himself, once for the sinners in the world, and once for the sinners who were suffering in purgatory. So he'd get up at night and whip himself. Uh, the idea of this self-flagellation had to do with uh, imitating the sufferings of Christ, you see. They would often meditate upon his passion, that is, his suffering at, there at the cross. And then in the Middle Ages, also this whole thing gained an added uh, aspect because they were able to induce certain types of trances and ecstatic states through these uh, forms of, of asceticism. In other words, if you, if you don't get enough sleep, if you don't get enough to eat, uh, if you beat yourself, you'll probably get yourself into some kind of a state where you might get some special trance-like uh, feeling. doesn't mean it's from God, uh, but they put a lot of stock in that. Well, anyway, um, in, in virtually every one of those things, you could come up with a scripture 
that would say, well, I think that justifies that. But it doesn't. It's not the, it's not the biblical position on the body. It's true that Jesus taught that if anyone would come after him, they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. But that does not mean that we purposely seek out discomfort and pain or that abstaining from food or marriage makes a person more holy than another person. Especially it is wrong to think that by practicing self-denial we earn God's favor or can somehow purge ourselves from sin. Often these practices of asceticism and self-denial show a great misunderstanding of grace. No amount of self-inflicted pain or deprivation of the body can ever earn salvation or merit God's favor. It's good to remember that. Could my zeal no respite no? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. So I want to kind of bring it home here a little bit more, because those are extreme examples. Actually, any time we have the thought that it's unspiritual to enjoy a good meal, or enjoy a beautiful sunset, or that marriage or sexuality is unclean, we are drifting in the direction of these doctrines of demons. So it doesn't have to be as extreme as what we're, well, some of these examples I've given. We must be careful about rejecting something as evil or worthless or contaminating, con- contaminating which God has given to us as a good thing. Any gift of God can be misused and abused, but that does not mean that the gift itself is not a gracious and good thing from God. <clears throat> So what's the proper way to use the good things that God has given? Well, Paul actually tells us here a number of things. First, we remember that they are gifts from our Creator. It's easy to take things like food and clothing and houses and cars and electricity and medicine uh, and that type of thing for granted and forget that these are gracious gifts from God. Next, we need to remember that they are to be used in a sharing manner, created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Selfish hoarding of these things is wrong. God has been kind with these good things, and we should be also. The proper attitude in using using God's good gifts also involves gratitude. You see that? For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. This is not only true of spiritual blessings. We should be grateful for God's material blessings as as well. What is at stake is our whole concept of God and God's design for creation. If we shun the good gifts of God, not using them or not using them as he designed, or if we use them but do not give thanks, we are still not fulfilling God's design for his creation, which is to bring glory to himself. He gives you those things 
that you might glorify his name. It brings glory to him. And you do that by using him rightly and by using him gratefully. That brings glory to God. They should be, they should be received and they should be received with gratitude to God. Lastly, the proper use of God's good gifts is to realize that they are sanctified by, the means, of the, by means of the word of God and prayer. Verse 5, For it is sanctified by the means of the word of God and prayer. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, yet the Christian idea of holiness does embrace even what we eat and drink. These things are sanctified, that is, they're set apart and made holy by the word of God. What's that mean? God's word gives us understanding of the proper use of the various aspects of his creation. We know how to use the things that God has given because he's told us in the scripture. If we just read and meditate and think on what he's shown us there, they're set apart sanctified by the word of God. God's word gives us understanding and the proper use of the various aspects of his creation. God has set many good things apart for us and told us so in his word. And we then are to set them apart to him by prayer. That is giving thanks for them and asking his blessing upon them. To put it another way, God has set them apart for us in his word and we set them apart to him by prayer. I think that's what Paul's saying here. God's word and prayer should be part of even our most common activities and actions of life. That's what it means to live by faith and bring glory to God. So, in closing, here are a few Gnostic influences to be careful about in our day and age. Now, I, I neglected to say at one point that those ascetics there uh, in the Middle Ages, Roman Catholics primarily, they were not Gnostics, but they had been influenced by some of this Gnostic teaching, this idea that matter is evil and the body is evil. But these, these kind of influence, uh, uh, influences are still around today. I mean, true, we live in basically a hedonistic age. It's kind of the other extreme. But you'll find within religious circles and even in Christianity, some of these influences on, this, uh, on the side of matter being evil and the body being evil still have uh, some hold on uh, various aspects of the Christian church. So... I'm trying to give you a few influences to be careful about in our day and age. A neglect or despising of the physical body. Be careful about that. That's not right. Um, contempt for the body is not Christian. I, I, I've fallen into that. I know myself, uh, especially as I get older. My back hurts and my other things aren't working right. I've, I've said to myself, stupid body. I have. Like, why don't you do what I want you to do? Dumb, dumb donkey. That's not a Christian attitude. 
the idea that the body is somehow a prison house of the soul. That was a phrase that was used in the Middle Ages. Or a dumb donkey, like Francis said. That did not come from Christian teaching. It came from a distortion of Christian teaching. We should never think of the body as unimportant and only the soul matters. The body is not the prison house of the soul. It is, at least for the Christian, the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's a whole different view. God cares about the whole person, body, soul, and spirit. I like this verse in 1 Thessalonians where Paul ends off his letter by saying, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Spirit, soul, and body. When a person comes to Christ, it's not just their soul that comes to Christ. The whole person comes to Christ, body, soul, and spirit. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Christ is to be Lord of all of you, not just your soul. And there's a sense in which the idea of being a soul winner is right, but we are people winners. We want that person, body, soul, and spirit to come to Christ. Um, another Gnostic error that we need to be careful about today is the idea that the physical world is not important. Only the spirit, spiritual things matter. This might lead us to think that concern for the environment and ecology is basically a waste of time. But God's, God's mandate for us as his image bearers is that we gratefully use his creation, not abuse it. One way we honor God is by taking care of his creation. So we need to be careful about it. Uh, we don't want to overreact to the extreme environmentalism pushed by some who do not believe and know the truth. Yeah, they're, they're off track. But this is my father's world, and I should take care of it. We're caretakers of his creation. And that means something to him. Also, the idea that the spiritual is the only important area of life, can we can easily slip into the thought that things like art and music and architecture and science and other cultural endeavors are just worldly things and of little value. The biblical view, on the other hand, is that, yes, these things are often forms of idolatry to fallen humanity, but the Christian, but for the Christian, they can and should be used for the glory of God and the good of others. We should be using his creation for his glory and for the good of others. The last thing that I would mention as a caution in this area is the view that heaven is our goal. I mean, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Heaven is our goal. Well, the idea for the Gnostic was that we must get away from the material realm to really know God. But again, this is not what the Bible teaches. Our goal is not to be disembodied spirits in a heavenly realm. 
Rather, our goal is a new heaven and a new earth where we live forever in resurrected bodies in communion with God. You don't have to get away from the material to be spiritual. Now, it's true that after our death here on earth, we will have a temporary existence as souls without bodies, but that's not our ultimate end. That's not what we should look forward to. Rather, we are looking forward to the resurrection of the body, and according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So, we need to keep our view of life and our existence here on earth in a biblical balance. And we do that by believing and knowing the truth. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from food, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So we need to read the Word of God. We need to know the Word of God. We need to apply uh, the biblical view of our existence to our lives every day, or we'll go off track one way or the other, hedonism or asceticism. Well, I'll stop there, but the verses we'll look at next time have to do with a proper discipline. He talks about disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness. These ascetic practices were disciplines, but they did not produce godliness. We need to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness, and we'll talk more about that next time. But uh, just... To emphasize, a contempt for the body is not Christian, but a carefulness about our bodily appetites and desires is scriptural, and we'll see that next time. So, let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to believe and know the truth, that we would have a balanced biblical understanding of our body, our soul, our spirit, our existence here on earth, what we're to look forward to, and how we can best glorify you uh, with our body, soul, and spirit, our person, who we are each day. Help us to receive your good gifts with gratitude and show forth that gratitude to a world that's so confused, so mixed up in their understanding of what life is to be. We ask that you'd help us in this so we could glorify you and do good for others. In Jesus' name, amen.